Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Tori Dixon. Tori is a therapist in Texas. She's going to talk to us all about her practice, mental health, chronic illness, and how these things all overlap. So Tori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. This is such an amazing opportunity, and I'm just glad to be here. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And I actually connected with you through Dr. Jessica Shepard, who's been on the show. So we love her. She's incredible. She she is incredible. And she and I have been um, working together um, over this past probably two years um, in in how we are managing, um, helping people manage both mental and physical wellness. And so we work together in doing that. I love that because I know when I interviewed her, she told me that she basically sort of keeps up relationships with various therapists, whether it's for couples counseling or for individual counseling. And the fact that she's referring chronic pain patients for mental health is so exciting because it's really hard sometimes to connect the dots to the mental health aspect of chronic illness. Absolutely. And it's and, and vice versa. I keep her at the top of my Rolodex. Young people won't know what a Rolodex is. They'll have to Google <laughs> that. But I keep her really at the top of the list because I have so many um, women to come and see me and they are experiencing chronic pain mm-hmm. and it's happening in the reproductive um, areas and they haven't had a connection. No one's ever made the connection for them. They, you know, some, some people just, they, um, they resign that this is just the way it's going to be. And I'm just going to have to live with it. And for many of them, they haven't even gone to see a really good clinician that's saying, okay, let's work on both sides of this to kind of figure out where we are in this. So she's been an instrument. She's been so instrumental in me being able to do that. And I'm grateful. I love that you guys are working together with your patient's best interests in mind. Um, That's lovely to hear. So let's start with your practice. Can you tell us about your practice, what you treat and um, your areas that you can also practice in? So um, I actually started Graceful Journey Counseling back in um, 2019, February the 11th of 2019. So I'm just a year and a half in private practice. And for me as a clinician, I specialize in grief and loss. Mm. And that is because um, I have a 14 year backdrop as a licensed mortician. So I've worked as a mortician. 14 years um, and been licensed mortician for 14 years. And so when I transitioned over into counseling, what I knew was that there needed to be a bridge between the grief process and what's happening um, in the mental health side of things. Mm. And there were nobody, there was nobody in the middle. And so I was like, hey, 
why don't I be the middle person who's actually licensed in both professions and will be able to provide a great opportunity for families to heal after having lost a loved one? Mm. And so when I say the word grief and loss, people immediately associate it with death and dying. But I like to say that anytime we experience a loss, we grieve. And so that may be the loss of a job. That may be the loss of reproduction. That may be the loss of one's normal, and I'm putting that in quotes, health, right? feeling good every day and then going to a space where you don't feel good every day, there's a loss. There's a loss in mobility. There's a loss in sleep. So anytime there is a loss, it could be relationship. It can be a job. It can be foreclosure on a home. It can be bankruptcy. It can be anytime you experience loss, you grieve. And I think we grieve more often than we actually do. And I believe that grief and loss ends up being foundational in the other things that we work through, depression, um, anxiety, um, you know, panic disorders. Um, I believe that a lot of that has to do fundamentally with there having been some sense of loss, be it the loss of safety or whatever it is, it's created this space where our mental capacities um, have, it has been harmed because of the loss. And then we have these symptoms that exhibit as a result. So my practice, that's basically what we do. We, I, I treat, I see, I see couples, I see individuals from anxiety and depression to panic to um, bipolar disorder. I see clients on an array of things, but I certainly at the bottom of it all, I dig for the loss. When I can find that space where the loss has occurred, I know that's where we can start the healing process and it changes other things and other aspects for folks. Absolutely. And you are based in Texas, but you practice virtually as well, don't you? So you've got practice in Texas and in Atlanta or in Georgia, I should say. Absolutely. So I have my physical location is in Arlington, Texas. And right now, due to COVID, we are doing all of our services via telehealth. And we just recently opened up our Atlanta office, virtual Atlanta office, where I have two clinicians out there, um, one who specializes in trauma and the other who is kind of a general practitioner. Um, She specializes as well in young people because she's a school counselor. So Mm. it has been around the young, the kiddos. And so just an array of clinicians that's doing an array of things, but we're excited to launch that Atlanta office. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I mean, this is something that we're going to get into later as well, but these are all also practitioners who are women of color and, you know, sort of being able to fill that gap so that especially the black community right now, when you're looking for someone who understands your experience, you know, we know about apps like health and her hue that have come up that Mm -hmm. are providing resources um, that are sort of for the black community by the black black community. And you're very much, along those lines. But of course, you can treat anyone. um, But you certainly are available in that respect as well. Absolutely. And also check out the Henry Health app. They're another um, app that is um, by an African-American man connecting African-American men to uh, clinicians of color as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Henry Health. And it's really, it's really awesome and amazing. So yeah, we are a practice of African-American women in that in you know, the stigma of mental illness, particularly in the Black community, um, we are trying to stomp out the stigma because we want um, African-Americans to know, like folks, we want y'all to know that there are clinicians that are sitting in chairs and you can sit across the couch from someone who looks like you and who completely understands the experience. Of course, we're not monolithic, but we are able to understand the experience of Blackness in America, um, even Blackness globally, 
Um, and, and so I have another clinician that I work very, very closely with. His name is Desmond Shepherd, and he's actually in Oklahoma. The Shepherd name may sound familiar. Mm-hmm. And he is in Oklahoma. And, you know, Dr. Shepherd, she is um, Jamaican Canadian. And so her dad. So even from a global perspective, we have access all of these clinicians who are able to serve in every capacity in the black community. And we're excited about the work that we're doing. I think that's really wonderful. And again, we'll get into this more later, but yeah. I wanted to also ask you, um, you know, you're dealing with mental health issues, which are largely, I mean, these are invisible conditions for mm-hmm. the most part. So how are you balancing the occurrence of hypochondria, perhaps, with the reality of these invisible symptoms, if you will, particularly as it concerns mental health and illness. Because I'm wondering whether, you know, you get people who come in who are, it's all in their heads, they're making it up, or whether you are really look at that holistically and go, well, if there is something in their head, then there's something that we need to treat, right? How are you sort of dealing with those issues? That's a great question. Because even hypochondria is still... A mental health condition, right? Yes. And if we look at it, it's all really rooted in anxiety. Mm. And so what, what we do ultimately is we start to break anxiety down. Um, I like to say separating the laundry. We like to Love break that. that anxiety down a little bit into what's rational, into what's irrational. And for people who are dealing with hypochondria, typically much of what they're dealing with are things that are irrational. These are irrational findings. And once we get to the root of the irrational findings, then now it comes time for us to kind of help them unlearn um, the, the, the fear of irrational things, right? And how do we, how do we deal with that in terms of your own mental wellness, right? So, and, and a part of kind of all that's what's going on in our country right now, we have this invisible illness, um, that we can't see it, we can't touch it. It's COVID-19. not it's unlike yet yeah, COVID nineteen. It's unlike anything that we've ever experienced. It's not the flu, right? So we know that it's not the flu. And so, um, how do we then, you know, for a person who's a hypochondriac, they'll be like, "Well, I have to do this this many times because this is what's going on." And I'm like, "Well, a part of that is true. Yes, there is some truth in that. You do need to wash your hands." but you don't need to wash them 75 times. They're the ritual that you've adopted that's said to you that you have to do this this many times in order for this to happen. We're going to have to disrupt the ritual Hmm. so that we can have a a talk about what's rational and what's irrational based on how you formulated that ritual and why that ritual is there. And much of that too is actually based in some sort of traumatic response. Um, when trauma has happened, the first thing that we lose when we experience trauma is we lose control, right? We oftentimes find ourselves when trauma happens, we're in a position where we've lost control and someone else or something else outside of self has taken control and has harmed us. And so what we've said is, is I'm not going to allow this to happen again. And whatever I need to do to control my environment, then that's what I'm going to do, even if it becomes irrational and it becomes to an extent where it's no longer healthy for men. Absolutely. It can lead to those obsessive behaviors for sure. Absolutely. So what diagnoses are you also finding to be the most recurrent in your practice? I know it runs the gamut, but are there treatments and diagnoses that you're most often recommending? Um, that's a good question as well. I, what we try to do in my practice is that, you know, there still is a very large stigma 
um, about mental health and mental illness and what that looks like in the real world, right? So we can sit in our office and we, we have these diagnoses, but then if that is to be out into, say, somebody's work environment or, you know, a school application or somebody trying to get a job, we, we try to be very mindful of that. Um, so I do a lot of adjustment disorders in my practice. And so because what I do is, is I look at it in terms of kind of what's going on right now in this person's life. There must be some major adjustment that may be causing a sense of anxiety, that may be causing depressed mood, um, that may be causing a mix of anxiety and depressed mood. So I like to take it from that adjustment standpoint. And then once I've gotten a little bit more time with the with the client, there are some clients where we're seeing a lot of anxiety um, disorders, um, a lot of generalized anxiety that is going on. And much of it is due to everything that's going on. But I like to say that COVID isn't the cause of it. It certainly is impacting it. And it's certainly what, it, what it's doing is kind of ripping off the Band-Aid, taking the top off of it, right? So before we had what I would say healthy distractions, um, we, had, we had our jobs, we had commutes, we had social functions. And now that those things have been stripped away, we now have a little bit more time to think, to process, to to wonder, to, to um, spiral, <laughs> to spiral, yeah. to worry, to be anxious. And so we're seeing a lot of anxiety. That's probably been what's been kind of going on, you know, for this year is that there has just been a lot of angst going on with people. And I just reassure them that it's okay, that what you're feeling is okay. Let's get to the root cause of it, but ultimately it's okay. Let's get comfortable with feeling what we're feeling so that we can get to the root cause of what's causing those feelings. And really understanding that so many of us are are living with anxiety right now, that it's so widespread that none of us are alone either. Absolutely, that it's not one man on an island. All of us are dealing in some way with, Um, anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know how close the illness may get to our own families. And, you know, now that we have parents having to make decisions about going back to school and going back to work, and then what does that look like if I don't send my child back to school, but I'm still working? Like, how do we make this happen as a family? Do we have a support system that we've already created? Do we have an infrastructure of support that we've already created that's going to be able to support us during this this time? And so, yes, that's, that, that comes along with the level of angst, not having all the answers. There comes a, a, a natural level of, okay, what are we going to do? Rest in that. It's okay. It's Absolutely. Okay. I love that. So I imagine that there are patients who come to you who have maybe been shuttled between specialists, you know, especially if they've got chronic illness, but also with, you know, anxiety disorders, mental health disorders, there's often, you know, a lot of guesswork before they arrive at the solution, the doctor who's going to help them find the solution. So does that make a difference for you in terms of the way that you administer care? Does it mean that you're using greater bedside manner or empathy um, if a patient is living with some form of invisible or chronic illness in terms of how you treat them? Absolutely. The the first thing that I say all the time is that, um, you know, listening is going to be the key. It's the key. When I have clients that come in and they say, you know what, I've gone to this doctor and I've gone to this therapist and I've gone and seen this person or that and nobody believes that what I'm going through is what I'm going through. 
um, they've run tests and, you know, and for some, they've said, you know, they've run this kind of test, but I've been doing my own research and I've been asking them about this kind of test and they won't run that gamut of tests for me. They won't, you know, they won't take this exam and they, and so I'm not being heard. And so in those, in those moments, the first thing that I do is I sit down and I listen and I just say, you know, tell me what your experience has been. Tell me what you've, what you've gone through up until this point. And that's kind of when the emotion comes in. You know, there's, there's a lot of, of, of tears and a lot of, I don't understand why they won't listen to me. And I reassure them that I'm listening. And I reassure them that everything that you have been feeling is real. It's happening. It's real. Um, and the minute that I say that, you can see this load is just completely lifted because finally somebody says, even if I don't know exactly what's going on at that time, it's real. It's happening just for somebody to acknowledge and validate that what you are feeling is real. It's not a figment of your imagination. You're not just looking for attention. This, this is not just, you know, who you are, the sickly person. Um, what you are experiencing is real. In the moment that I say that, Lauren, it just changes the whole mood in the room. And the, in the, in the client is typically so much more open about how their feeling has been impacting their mental wellness. Um, because there is a mind-body connection and, you know, they're so open to now telling me what's going on with them on the mental health side now that I've validated that what they're feeling in their physical body is actually real. Does it also become part of your job in cases like that to empower these patients with tools to advocate for themselves as well if clinicians aren't listening to them? Absolutely. And I say all the time, if, if you find a clinician who's not listening, either on the medical side of your health or the mental health side of your health, you find someone else. Um, you go down the list and you find someone who is going to hear what you're saying. They may or may not agree with you and that's okay, but let them know you need to be your own advocate. But by that, by the, the time I see a lot of these, um, these patients who are, who have chronic illness, they've already been beaten down so much. Their voice has already been muted so much. And they feel as though maybe it, maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not seeing this clearly because if I've gone to three you know, professionals and they've told me they're finding nothing, then maybe it is me. Maybe there is something wrong with me. And so they, they lack the confidence. They don't feel um, self-assured. And, you know, oftentimes they don't even have advocates within the realms of their own family members. And so it's, it's like, you know, well, you've gone to four doctors and they, they're all saying that there's nothing wrong. So I don't understand. And, and they just feel that you can see the weight of the despair um, because they, they feel as though no one is listening. And so that, that sometimes is like the key, the first step to getting them to go to just one more doctor and say, okay, let's just try one more, let's try one more physician um, to get them to say, okay, I have the courage now to speak out again about what's, about what's going on with me. 
Absolutely. And I imagine there are factors that also play into this concept of not being listened to in the medical system, you know, factors like gender um, and and race, um, sexuality, like these invisible layers, right? And I'm wondering whether you or your patients, um, you know, often experience undue either prejudice or perhaps privilege in the healthcare system as it regards the way that that we're all presenting ourselves. You know, I walk into a medical office, I'm a white woman. Mm -hmm. So I've got the layer of gender, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And can you see people's circumstances being different based on the experiences that you're hearing about, depending on the way they present? Oh my gosh, absolutely. It, it is, and it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, when we deal in the realm of systemic racism, I like to um, to liken it unto the blood that kind of goes through our body, right? So if you have a blood disorder, every major organ of your body is going to be impacted based on what's in your blood because your blood is responsible for feeding every other area. So from your brain health, to your vision, to your, um, to your heart, to your lungs, to your kidneys, to your digestion, like everything is impacted. And that's the way we have to really see what happens in our country, that this is not just an isolated incident with just one thing. It impacts the way doctors see patients. Um, if you know anything about the history of gynecology, the, the gentleman who um, is the father of, of, the, of gynecology, he used enslaved Black women to operate on them to do hysterectomy procedures um, and to tie tubes. And all of these things were done without any anesthesia. And so when you think about that and you think about the, the pain that has been, that were inflicted on those Black bodies, much of that same thought it can be seen in the medical and the mental health side of things, that Black people don't feel pain, that there's there's an unusually high level of pain receptors that they have. And so when patients and clients come in to talk about pain, they're not necessarily taken seriously because there is this stigma, there is this racist ideology that says, Black people don't feel pain the way that white people feel pain. Which is based on Um, absolutely no science whatsoever. No science whatsoever. When you talk about the Tuskegee Tuskegee experience, experiment, excuse me, um, and how they um, refused to to, um, treat Black men with gonorrhea, syphilis and gonorrhea, and allowed it to run its course and for them to die so that they can see what ends up happening when a, when a disease that could have been treated with penicillin, a very simple antibiotic back in that day, they refused treatment for these men. And many of these men were, were, were veterans. These were veterans. These were soldiers who fought for the country and they were refused treatment in the Tuskegee experiment. So to say that people of color and black people have a hard time with trusting the medical profession. Um, Mental health is much the same way. All of the theoretical um, background and foundation of mental health was not done um, to consider the racial tension in the and what happens with race and ethnicity and with um, socioeconomic disparities. None of that was considered. And so we have all of these theories that are based on really by white men or white people. And we're having to turn that into into theories that work for us, right? So now one of the really big research um, 
areas that we're doing now in mental health is understanding racial trauma and what that looks like, that there was there's very little research being done on it, but now clinicians like us are going back into the classroom and we're developing research and developing studies to help understand how the historical and generational trauma of race has impacted the Black community, both mentally, emotionally, physically, psychologically, economically, all of it is being impacted based on race and what that looks like. So we're trying to do a lot of work here. And it's, 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 it's heart-wrenching because I face it myself, right? So I'm a Black woman. You walk into a doctor's office. There's already a sense of stigma that, that goes along with that. Sometimes it can be a judgment based on whether or not you can afford to be there, right? Um, it's, a, it's a question of, you know, whether or not you're going to come in with a legitimate claim here. Um, are you are you going to actually listen to what's going on with me? Or are you going to assume that you know what's going on with me without taking in all of the information to, to in the framework of that, right? Um, and, and let's take weight and size into it because yes. I'm not a skinny black woman, right? And so then we we measure our ourselves against a chart about height and weight and size and what that's supposed to look like. And so you are labeled with, you know, terms like, you know, you're morbidly obese and um, all the other things that, all the other factors that come along with that, but we don't necessarily consider the social environment and the social factors that impact health and wellness. Um, uh, We have food deserts in urban communities that impact how people eat, um, stress-related things that that impact how people eat. I mean, it's just all the things. And so when a client comes in and we have these discussions, I try and look at it um, like what I call from an Eiffel Tower view. Right. So if you're up at the top of the Eiffel Tower, you can see more of the landscape of what's impacting whomever is down there, as opposed to kind of taking this very horizontal kind of look at things. I I love that you're talking about it from a perspective, though, of using research to work toward healing generational trauma, um, you know, and utilizing what we have at our disposal in order to bridge the gap to create more trust in the healthcare system and to remove stigmas over time. And to, you know, it's this idea of unlearning. I know a lot of people have been hearing that buzzword a lot in the last few months, especially. And, you know, it is about for people outside communities of color to understand that the world's been designed for them. Mm -hmm. And it is for communities of color to be able to have the space to stand up and be able to create structures that will support them going forward. Absolutely. Just, mm. just, and, and, and here's the deal. We don't want to completely dismantle all that has been, you know, created in this space. What we want to do is we want to use what has been created and we want the support in order to, in many sense of the word, recreate or reinvent what needs to be done to help the black community and help, you know, um, people of color, because it's, Mm. it's just so instrumental that we have tools and we have spaces that understand the necessity of us taking into account the panoramic view of how, um, how health, health and mental health are, are impacted. And so that's really what we want to do overall. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Would you say that racial and gender inequity, I mean, as well as, you know, 
sexual identity inequity, um, all the various forms of identity that we've talked about today. Would you say that these issues in the healthcare system are a public health crisis? Oh my gosh, absolutely. It is absolutely a public health crisis. We have this from a therapist, everyone. We have this from a practitioner. This is a public health crisis. This is on the same scale, if not more, than this global pandemic that we are experiencing. Yes. Because what happens is, is when we don't make the corrective changes, it impacts generations. It impacts generations. It's not just what's happening today. It's not just for your children. It impacts generations. And so this is a probably a crisis of epic proportions. Um, and I think what happened is, is I, I've been saying this from the beginning, that coronavirus and COVID has shaken the pot a little bit. And what it's done now, it's, it's doing, uh, it's separating the wheat from the tear. And it is giving us this opportunity to really see that the infrastructure of what we have been doing has not been working. It, it hasn't been working. It hasn't. And if it doesn't, here's the, here's the key. If it doesn't work for everyone, it works for no one. Yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm air clapping over here. I don't want to yes. clap into the mic, but like, I could not agree with you more. That is so well said. Absolutely. You know, um, we, there, there was a, there's a saying kind of back in the civil rights era where they said, none of us is free until all of us is free. Yeah. Right. And so if we do not see this as a crisis that impacts all of us, we will all be impacted by the crisis. Nonetheless, whether you, whether you, whether it's directly or indirectly, whether it's overt or covert, you will still be impacted by what happens if we do not take an opportunity to start to dismantle all of the, the lenses of, of discrimination that happens um, for, for everyone. If we don't dismantle it, it's going to impact us all. Period. None of us can get out of this alive if we don't work on this. And if we don't do it together. If we don't do it together, absolutely. So, I mean, we're talking about the healthcare system. We know that there are ways in which it's falling short that we're talking about right now. Um, We know that with any kind of layer of identity beyond white male, you know, Mm -hmm. with each additional layer, patients are looking at a less positive experience in the healthcare yeah. system, right? So are there ways in which the current system is working at all? I mean, you're allowed to say there aren't, <laughs> but think, you know, are, are, is it, is healthcare accessible in some ways? Well, I think it depends on who you ask, mm. right? I think it depends on who you ask. Um, the problem is that healthcare um, on every level is a privilege, mm. And so this means, again, that if all of us do not have access to a system that would allow for everyone to have the same level of care, then that means that we, again, cause this chasm between those who have and those who do not have, right? So that means if a person who, quote unquote, does not have insurance, if there is a different road and a different method of treatment for that individual, as opposed to someone who comes in with this top-notch care of treatment, like they have the best insurance plan, 
They have a zero deductible rate, which again, a deductible, again, will keep you out of being seen. Because yeah. if I have to match a five or 10 or $15,000 deductible, and my yearly salary is only thirty to $45,000, then of course, that yearly salary is going to be dependent on who you are and what community you live in, right? Because I believe Black people earn 5% on the dollar. Mm. As as far as in, in terms of our white counterparts, right? Mm. So that deductible is going to keep me from going to the doctor, yeah. which is now going to impact the level of care that I receive. I'm now, I may have something urgent and I'm going to go to an urgent care instead of going to an ER because I know one is going to be $30,000 when I walk out the door and the other may be 300. And mm. I know what I can afford because I know I'm going to have to treat my kids. So Am I saying that none of the healthcare system is working? I, I'm not going to put that broad spectrum. I think, I think we're saying it's working for people who have privilege, which it's, tends to be if you're white and male, especially. Absolutely. It's working for the people who are privileged to be able to participate in the system um, in, a, in a manner that fully expresses what the system is supposed to be for the people who can participate in it. Because so it's been designed them, for them. It's been designed for them. For, so mm-hmm. for them, it's working. Yeah. Um, you know, as a clinician, I work on a sliding scale. So there are some people who come to my office and they have insurance and we will file their insurance and we'll go through that process. But then what happens to the person who calls me and says, hey, I have no insurance. I work on a sliding scale. I've seen clients for as little as five bucks a session mm. and they get the exact same therapy. They get the exact same Tory that the person who has insurance can, can actually pay, right? Mm. And some people may say, well, if Tori, if they don't have any money and you're advocating for the poor and why, why not? Because why, why not just do it for free? And here's my thing is that we assume that people who have less don't place value on the services that they are asking for and that they want them for free. And that too is a mindset that ends up uh, causing this divisive mm. um, space between us. People who are who don't have or who don't have as much, they're not asking for things to be free. They're asking for them to be affordable based on what they have. Hmm. So when I have a client that comes in and they say, you know what, I, I can't afford your services. I know that. And I said, well, can you afford 10 bucks a session? And they say, yeah, they buy into it. And they and it, what it does is, is it lets them know that I have the power. That my $10, it may not be 50, it may not be 100, but my $10 still has the same power impact that anybody else's money has and that this clinician is going to treat me with my $10 the same way she would treat anybody else. Mm-hmm. It restores the sense of dignity. Um, the the mm-hmm. idea that people are just wanting to leech off the government and they just want free stuff and this is fascism and all the isms that make no sense. Mm. People who don't have much, they have more oftentimes than other people because they have dignity. Mm. They have dignity and pride in what they do have and what they can't afford. And when we allow them to, to, when we allow them to show up fully in their space, no matter what that space is, it changes the dynamic of the relationship that we have. And it really reinforces a commitment to doing the work, doesn't it? It creates an accountability absolutely. when you invest absolutely. in something, even if it's $10 and not yes. 100 Yes, absolutely. They get to buy into their own healing. They get to buy into, into rebuilding and changing their generation, it, it, their, their, their genealogy, right? So if I can go come to therapy and I can change the way I see things, I know it's going to impact my children and it's going to impact their children. 
And if I, my investment on that is my work that I put into this process and my $10 and, and I, and I freely take it and we, we, we have session and yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I, I mean, the other part of that is that it only works as well. If there are people who are paying full freight when they can afford it as well, like it's important Absolutely. that we recognize that these people who have privilege and can afford a higher rate are also paying the higher rate to even things out. To even things out for, mm-hmm. for the business owner and, you know, to, and, and, and I will tell you that I, I, I don't have any issues in that regard mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I, I make sure that as a part of my ethical responsibility as a therapist is that we make our services accessible to all people. Um, there are some things that I'll do some Instagram lives where those are free and people will have access to them. Mm-hmm. I do some things on, you know, my, my Facebook page where I'll pick a, a topic and I'll talk about that thing for 30 minutes and I'll post it up there and people have access to that free information. Um, people will call me and they say, Hey, are there any resources? And, you know, for free stuff, I've, 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 you know, um, giving them information to other, you know, uh, community centers that's offering programs and, and not necessarily therapy. Sometimes mm-hmm. they just need extra support. Sometimes they just need some group. Sometimes they just need some activities to kind of help them along the way. But mm-hmm. um, I love the work that I get to do. It's, it's just phenomenal. The work mm-hmm. that I get to do. I love that it, it also, like it was a natural transition for you. You are already taking care of people from the grief side, you know, moving into yeah. this more holistic approach. I think it's a beautiful journey you've been on and that you're able to take people on too. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream-big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. What about also, I mean, this idea of work-life balance, right, which we know is also in flux right now because of COVID. But would you also say, I mean, we've talked about healthcare. Would you say that our lifestyle expectations are also creating creating problems in terms of our ability to handle stress and generational trauma and grief and, you know, all of this kind of approach to mental health? Absolutely. Um, You said something that is critical. You said work-life balance. And what that indicated is that my work is always going to come first and my life has to accommodate my work. What I like to say is a life-work balance because that's ultimately what it's supposed to be. We are supposed to have lives where our work comfortably coincides with the life that we are trying to create for ourselves, for our families, for those who um, rely on us and impact us. But our society, our, our world, our culture, excuse me, American culture, they are work first, life later. So work first, life later means life on the back burner, work first. We are now in a pressure cooker. We aren't doing work uh, the way that we are used to doing it. 
we're not doing school the way that we're used to doing it. We're not doing family the way that we're used to doing it. All of this together is creating an unusual amount of stress for us in these spaces. I was hearing, you know, we're hearing a lot about what happens when these people, when people are who are having been working is getting the supplement for $600 a week. Hmm. And they're like, you know, people are making more money on unemployment benefits than they are working 40 hours a week. Which is unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And when I say unbelievably, I also mean completely believable because I've been that employee who hasn't made as much money being employed as I have on unemployment. I mean, I I know that experience firsthand and it is incredibly demoralizing. And no one stopped to just say that. That my work goes beyond just my time on the clock. That many of us are investing ourselves, the fullness of who we are. We show up every day for our jobs. We, we show up in a space and saying that we're going to give the best that we have today. Today may not be 100%, but it may be 80, and that's the best that I have. So you're telling me that when I commit to going to a job and giving the very best of who I am to this space for the time I'm supposed to give it, that I cannot make enough money. And that not working and not being in many spaces, you know, being able to give my creativity or being able to just to, to smile at someone, you're, you're telling me that I can make more with not sharing the fullness of my personhood through my work, which all of us find a sense of purpose in our work than I can at my job. Mm. That says a lot about the way that we treat work. Yeah. And about the way we treat the people who do the work. Mm-hmm. And the socioeconomic differences too, like the class differences, the the way the middle class is eroding entirely, you know. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's shocking to me. And then we don't even realize how that impacts the mental wellness of an yeah. individual. To say that me doing nothing is worth more to my society than me actually showing up fully in the person of who I am Mm. and giving who I am to my work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable to me, uh, this expectation as well, you know, that people are working 12 to 16 hour days. So they're spending more time at work than they are in their personal lives, you know, and the stress that this puts on someone, especially when, as you say, they can't bring their whole personhood to the table and they're not making enough money working these three different jobs that they have to work. You know, um, we know that money is like the leading cause of divorce in this country. So it's not surprising to me if we can also make a correlation between the, you know, money being also the, the leading cause of stress in general. Yes. It's the biggest, it's one of the Economics and money and financial um, lack is one of the biggest issues and concerns that I see when clients sit with me. It's Mm. like I'm having to make these very detrimental decisions. Do I do this or do I do that? And it's Mm. all based on what is it going to look like for the bottom line of my family. And it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult 
space to be in. And for those who may be struggling financially and um, you, you don't know really literally if there's a next paycheck, um, you know, our, our government right now is fighting each other yeah. over whether or not we should extend benefits. I read something <laughs> um, the other day, as a matter of fact, this morning, I was reading that 23 million renters are going to be out of a place to live by the end of this this year wow. because wow. of what's happening with the global crisis. We are in crisis mode. And for those who are not in that category, if you think it's not going to impact you, that there's going to be lots of vacancies in neighborhoods and property values are going to come down, again, if we, if, if we don't get it to where it affects none of us, it's going to impact all of us. Yeah. And so people have these these real life issues looming over them. You know, this it, it seems to be so simple that there couldn't have, have been a mandate in saying, hey, we're not going to throw renters out. We're not putting people out. You know, you, you guys find a way if you you know, I understand. But there's subsidies to help people who are, are you know, sending renters or landlords or what we have to find a way so that, you know, because poverty is eroding us in so many, so many different ways, it's, it's harming us. And so, and this mental health impact, it's like, this is, it all comes back to invisible illness and and this mind body connection, right? That like, when you're stressed out, you're more likely to get sick. You're like more likely to get sick. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're not sleeping well, Mm -hmm. um, you're more likely to have a mental health episode. If you're not sleeping, Um, that means if you're not eating, you know, if we're stressed, oftentimes we're either eating too much of the wrong thing or we're not eating enough at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this this leads to this feeling of anxiety, this feeling of worry, this feeling of fear, this feeling of panic, um, this feeling of sadness, you know, that's leading to this depressed mood um, where people are questioning a lot of the decisions that they made at the beginning of the year. Had I done this or if I would have done that, then this wouldn't be here. And so many of us, we have to kind of settle in and say, you know what, there was nothing that I could do to plan for this pandemic. There was there was no way we could have seen this or prepared for this in any other way that we have and that we are now. So you're not alone. You're not by yourself. All of us are asking the question, Okay, well, what's going to be next? What is the next going to look like for us? Mm. So so if you're feeling anxiety about it, you're not by yourself. Yeah, you're not yeah. by yourself and, and reach yeah. out to a clinician to kind of help you to be able to, like I say, separate the laundry. Mm-hmm. There's a part of this thing that you cannot control. We can't control how long this pandemic is going to last. We cannot control whether or not the Congress is going to extend benefits. We cannot control our landlords. We cannot control. We just cannot control so much of this. But a part of this is us making sure that the things that we can control, that we are diverting our energy from things that we can't control over to things that we can. And the things that we can manage, that we do the best that we can and putting forth the best effort in doing that. Yeah, so beautifully said. Now, what about, you know, patients who you're prescribing a a treatment or maybe some lifestyle changes to some, you know, cognitive behavioral kind of approaches? Does a diagnosis mean that these patients need to upend their lives entirely? Like how disciplined do they need to be when it comes to these prescriptions for behavior? Um, 
And it's so funny that you ask that because um, I'll have clients come in and they're like, I know now that I've had some time to think, I know that my life is in complete shambles and I need to make some changes right now, right here today, like now. And I say, wait, 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 let's pump your brakes and slow Mm. your roll (laughs) because we are not in the ideal conditions that we were in a year ago. Yeah. The pressure now, the environment now is different. We are in a situation now where we have less mobility and we have less support in the lifestyles that we have. For instance, parents, school is a support system for you because for at least for for most of us, not barring those those parents who have experienced loss due to some sort of violence that has happened in our school settings, but for, for, for for the most part, when you send your kid to school, you know, for the most part that there is some, some, you know, exactly where they are. Mm. You know, that there's reasonable level of safety. You know, that they are, you know, getting they're they're being taught, they're, they're learning. Right. And, and it allows you to function at your best for the most part on your job. Mm. Right. That's a support system. And now that you don't have that, now you are the parent and the teacher and the principal and the lunch lady and the janitor now, and you're still working. Now that you're doing all these roles, I tell people, so listen, change is a lifetime. You have a lifetime to make a change. Let's not try to get this done in two weeks because the pressure of making the changes that adds in with the pressure of the life that we have, it can be very much so overwhelming. And so I tell them, I say, let's take this thing one step at a time. A part, a big part of us making change is actually just saying out aloud that there are some things that's kind of going on in our lives that we are not happy about. So coming to therapy and just having that first session and being able to regurgitate all that stuff and to get it out and to actually say it and hear it, it's just like a weight has been lifted. And so my first thing is I'm like, okay, grab you a journal. That's the first thing you need to do. Grab a journal. And start to write some things out. There's probably some things that you've never told anybody. You've never put on paper. You've never said anything. Let's not think that we can go um, from one phase of who we are and do this total 180. And now we have a whole new different life. We're doing whole new different behaviors. We're on three different types of diet. We're doing keto. We're doing no meat. (laughs) We're doing vegan keto. And we're not doing any drinking. We stopped drinking all, you know, of our alcohol. Okay, let's pick one fight at a time. Let's do one thing at a time. If you're saying you want to change your eating habits, why don't we start with just adding more water to your everyday (laughs) life? Let's start to do baby steps. You know, let them be like, well, you know, Tori, I'm not drinking any more sodas. I'm not having no little peas. I'm not having anything with sugar related. I'm doing keto and I'm being vegan. Okay. Oof. Well, that's too much. Mm. And then when you're not able to sustain that, when your expectation is not meeting your reality, mm. you have this huge level of disappointment in yourself, in your in your progress. It's like, okay, so I must not be really all that serious because mm-hmm. I'm not doing everything I said I would do. And I'm like, let's start simple. Let's drink some more water. How much water do you drink today? They're like, ah, maybe two tablespoons. Okay. Why don't we go to a cup? Let's yeah. do, let's get to one cup of water a day for the next five days. And mm-hmm. let's see how that makes you feel better and see what happens from there. Right? And it's those baby steps creating consistency. It's those baby steps that creates the consistency. I was having a conversation this week um, with a few of my clients and I said this and it's just been ringing all week. 
that in order to heal dysfunction, we have to create some disruption. Yeah. Right? And sometimes that disruption um, is something simple as being consistent. That consistency is what's going to create the disruption that you need to heal the dysfunction. And so the dysfunction is whatever you find that you don't like. So if you're like, "Uh, I'm feeling a little lethargic and I know I don't drink any water and I just don't do it. Okay, well, let's create some disruption in that pattern so that you can heal that particular dysfunction. And the disruption is consistently drinking that one cup of water a day. And let's see how that happens. And then we can go up to two cups of water. And then now we're up to a bottle of water a day. You have to create some sort of disruption in the pattern that is sustaining the disruption in your life. Mm, Well, and that's, I love that you use the word sustaining there because it's about if there's a sustained disruption, it's about creating a sustained or a sustained dysfunction. There's about, it's about creating a sustained disruption. So about using those, I mean, I'm a great example of that because I've had, I've struggled with exercise fatigue, for example, Mm -hmm. and I've just challenged myself to go for a walk for half an hour three days a week. And you know, who actually encouraged me to do it is Girl Trek. And I've been Ah. listening to their, you know, which is an amazing organization. So, you know, I was like, if I can do this three days a week and do it for like a few months, get in a pattern, I'll add a fourth day and eventually I'll be up to five days. And then eventually I can get on the elliptical and eventually I can get on a bike, you know, and it's just those baby steps and it makes all the difference. Yeah, that makes all the difference. I say, I say all the time that the life that you, you're one decision away from the life that you want. Oh, I love not that. Not 55 decisions, not 7,500 decisions, <laughs> just one. You're just one decision away from the life that you want. And that's mm-hmm. whatever it is. And that's consistently making one new decision. That's consistently, yeah. that's that, that's sustaining that disruption. Hmm. so that we can heal whatever is dysfunctional that's going on in our lives. Just one decision away. I love that. So what would your top three tips be then for Ah. someone who is, you know, maybe they are trying out mental health support for the first time, or maybe they're living with chronic illness and they need mental health support. What do you want patients to know? Um, you know, the best tips for, for managing mental health. I mean, I know you've sort of mentioned them all throughout this interview, but I, I, if you can sort of crystallize for us what those top three nuggets of information are. So the top three things I would say, one is validate. Hmm. We're going to validate your feelings. Whatever you are feeling, wherever you are right now today is real. It's happening. It's truth. It's your reality. And it's okay. You don't need anybody outside of yourself to tell yourself that what I have been experiencing is true. So validating just how you how you feel, um, uh, writing it down, being consistent about writing those things down and saying, this is where I am today. This is how I'm feeling today. Um, that's one. Two, um, a part of it is after you validate those feelings, if you're looking for a mental health, you know, provider, look until you find someone who is going to encourage you to continue to stand in the power that validation gives. I love that. Yeah. Look for somebody who is going to encourage you to do that. Because when you, I, I love this statement and I, I, I said I was going to write a book, but when you get <laughs> comfortable with the narrative of your own story, you become less concerned about the version that other people choose to tell. 
Yes. I'm all my, all the air clapping over here. Yeah. When you become comfortable and a part of what this therapeutic process is, is to first just let people get comfortable with the story, the mm-hmm. their own narrative and empowering them. Because if you have that narrative, you, you are one decision. You are one sentence away from creating a new narrative mm-hmm. that tells a new story about the life that you have. So, so validate for yourself that this is real for me. Find you someone who's going to encourage you to, to, to own your story, no matter where you are in the process and, and shop around for that person. You know, clinicians are, you know, there are a lot of us out there. Um, There are a lot of websites to help you find someone, but if you, if you see someone once and they don't necessarily fit with you, it's okay. Find somebody else. And many offer a very decent cash rate or sliding scale. So it's always worth asking. Absolutely. And most of us, just due to our own ethical requirements as clinicians, we are required to offer a sliding scale because we don't want the practice of mental wellness to be a privilege. We want it to be a right. It's everyone's right to live healthy, both in your mind and in your body, Mm -hmm. Um, to have total health and total wellness. It's a right you to have. So that's, that's in the third one, I would say is again, create consistency, be consistent, mm-hmm. be consistent. I was watching a video probably about two or three months ago. And I, I promised that once this was the last time that I was going to actually give this particular lady that I absolutely love credit for what she asked. Um, her name, Tracy Ellis Ross. She was, oh, we love her. don't you love her? Oh, like in my head, do you remember the show Girlfriends? Yes, of course I do. Yes. So she's been my girlfriend since girlfriends and she just had no idea, but we're friends in my head. Mm. Um, So I hope she hears the podcast and then calls me so we can actually have this chat together. Yeah. And and please, please invite me. (laughs) You're coming, Lauren. You are in there. You're in there. So she was doing this interview with the, with the, with the magazine and she was talking about her life and how she was trying to create her own space, you know, not wanting to really live in the shadows of her big star mom and want, and, and having a really hard time with delineating between her daughtership with her mother and her own individuality and what that meant for her. And so she said, one day she stopped and asked herself this question. She said, are you willing, am I willing to enter into a, um, what's the word she used? Am I willing to enter into an unconditional relationship with myself? Yes. What a question. Am I willing to enter into an unconditional relationship with myself? And it's one, that's the one decision away from changing your whole life. Is that not the one decision away, Lauren? Yeah. It's so true. As you, it's so true. So as you are validating your own story, as you are finding a clinician who will help you stand in the truth of that story, you have to go into this process asking yourself, am I willing to enter into this unconditional relationship with myself? Because for so many of us, we've been in unconditional relationships with everything except ourselves. We've poured into jobs that are not serving us. We've poured into relationships that are not serving us. We've been inadequate in finding balance between parenthood and selfhood, that there is a necessary balance so that you can, you know, fulfill the role as best you can. But we haven't entered into this unconditional relationship with ourselves that says anything that doesn't serve me, that doesn't heal me, 
that doesn't that doesn't propel me into being the person that I want to be, I'm going to have to let it go. Yeah. A lot of it is about shedding that excess, you know, just getting rid of the stuff that doesn't serve you and focusing only on the stuff that does serve you. Absolutely. So true. That does serve you. And what that means is, is having a really good understanding of what self-care is. Yeah. And I say self-care is caring for self first. Mm. Selfish is caring for self only. Yes. We've mixed up those two and we feel as though self-care is being selfish mm. and it's not considering those of us around us who need us. But when you care for yourself first, you end up not pouring from your cup, but you end up giving from the overflow of the saucer that's there. So you mm, end up giving the excess. Yeah. Cause that's mm. what we're supposed to be giving. We give of our excess, not of our need. And that's, and then you are creating from a place of abundance. From a Enjoy. place of abundance. Mm. And that goes back to me entering into that unconditional relationship with myself. Oh, so beautifully said. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you in the work you do, to support the growth of removal of mental health stigma? What can listeners who are tuning into this episode today do to plug into continuing and supporting you and continuing the work that you're doing? That is such a great question. And to be honest with you, Um, many entrepreneurs don't get asked that question much. How can I, how can I serve you? Um, if I had to do a broad picture, I would say, take care of your mental health, your mental health. Um, and, and this is what I say, everything of our bodies, if we don't want them anymore, if they don't work, we can exchange it, right? We, we can get a new heart. If it stops working, we can get new kidneys. If the, if they stop working lungs. We can exchange them out. People have even done new faces. We do all types, anything, but except your brain. Your brain is the only organ that you will have from birth until death. Take care of it at all costs. If it's costing you your peace, if it's costing you your wellness, it's too expensive. And so that's with jobs, that's with relationships, that's with um, our goals if we are trying to achieve things in, in our in our pathway to success is causing us mental angst, stop. You're on the wrong path. If it's costing you to, if it's costing you your mental wellness, it's way too expensive. Take care of your mental health. Everybody needs a therapist. I have a therapist mm. that I check in with, that I talk to. These, this is a, a, a professional who's licensed. Um, and he can help me with my problems. We've got to stop putting the weight of our mental wellness on our family members and on our friends who are, who are dealing with their own issues and who are not <clears throat> equipped enough to be able to help you solve problems that are deeply rooted in spaces of trauma that needs to be worked through by a professional. Everybody needs a therapist, whether you're going through something or you're not. It's like having a PCP, right? You go for these checkups, you know, and you don't, you don't go to the ER for a mammogram, right? But you can't go to your PCP once you have eight or nine gunshot wounds. You're going to have to go to the ER at that point. So take care of your mind. For me, share stuff. I have a couple pages. You can find me at Therapy Tory Talks on Instagram. 
Um, you can find me at Therapist Corey on Twitter. Um, again, we have two locations. We have a virtual office out in the state of Georgia. We have one right here, uh, a physical location and virtual location here in Texas. Share that information. You can find me at Graceful Journey Counseling on Facebook. Get on there and post and share and share, share with us. And remember to keep us in mind when you're meditating, when you're praying. We do a lot of heavy lifting. I believe mm. that we are also on the front lines of what's going on. We talked about doctors and nurses, but mental health professionals are on the front line. As a matter of fact, in so much that I also am now temporary licensed in the state of New Jersey because they were having so many people who needed help that they they petitioned clinicians around the country to please to get temporary license in the state of New Jersey so wow. that the residents can have access to clinicians and insurance companies have been open to allowing us to, you know, bill through people's insurance if they have it. Again, we work on a sliding scale. There are clinicians out there and you do not have to do this alone. You're not by yourself. Mm-hmm. You're not by yourself. During this time, we are seeing that suicide rates are going up yeah. and yeah. we're just asking you and we're pleading of you that the thing that the vehicle of, of, of what you're, the thing that you're going to need most in getting moving forward is your life. You're going to have to have it. You have to have your life in order to see some change in, for, in order for things to get better. So I think that's kind of where, where we are. That's um, so beautiful. Yeah. What's next for you in your advocacy and in your wellness journey? What's next for Tori? Uh, What's next for Tori? So Tori is um, I'm working on I'm, I'm working on a podcast, right? Yes. So, um, yes. So I'm working on a podcast. Um, I'm trying to get all the all the elements of what that entails together. Um, I in my own personal life, I'm working on I'm hiring clinicians. So we have a clinician here in the Dallas office because ultimately my goal is to see less clients and to be in the community, particularly the black community and saying, Hey, we are here. Um, let's, let's, let's get our mental health together because this is going to be a part of the generational wealth that we have in building and creating the community that's going to function for our kids and for our grandkids and for six and seven, seven generations to come. And so that's, that's the next thing working on a podcast. Um, trying to keep my own mental health and wellness together to keeping things into perspective. Um, Fridays, I don't see clients on Fridays. Um, that's my day off with Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm off. Oh, well, and I've taken some of your Friday. Thank you. For- <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, this is perfect. This is what I do on my Fridays. I mm. try and spread the word um, of how important mental health is. Um, and, and here's another thing, guys. Stay grounded um, in your spirituality. Whatever that is for you, Stay grounded because uh, the thing about your spiritual understanding and your spiritual grounding, those things are principles that typically do not change. Everything else around us is going to fluctuate and change. But when you are grounded and when you are anchored in your spirit and in your soul and you know what your truth is for your life, it changes the perspective on how you're seeing everything else change around us. So stay grounded in your, in your spiritual work, whatever that may be. Tori, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before I set you free into your evening? (laughs) Well, I just want to say thank you. Um, Mm. I want to remind us that we are a collective body. Mm. Um, And, you know, we learned, and even in church growing up, we learned that if the pinky toe is hurting, bang bang your pinky toe on something, everything hurts. Mm. And so we can't let a part of our body hurt and ignore the pain. We don't want to become numb 
to whatever is ailing our fellow um, brothers and sisters. And so if something is harming me as a black woman, I want it to hurt you up at the top in your earlobe. I want the earlobes to feel that. So whatever person is up there, whatever community is up there, I want you to feel that because we don't want a numb pain in our society. The pain of others should be very important to how we function in our own daily lives. And if you are watching people in pain, whatever, whether you understand the pain, whether you understand how the person hit their toe on the side of the couch, whether you understand how they got themselves in the predicament or a position that you feel is not good or not healthy, you don't have to understand how they got there. All you need to know now is that they're hurting. And there's so many of us who are hurting. And I just want us all to collectively, as the body of humanity, to pay attention to our fellow brothers and sisters who are hurting. Yeah. Don't let us hurt alone. Don't let people hurt by themselves. Find a space where you can find empathy and compassion and come alongside them and share in the joy of what grief and sorrow does to developing relationships. We can't just be addicted to people's lives when we see that they're going good, but we have to join them in the fellowship of their suffering because this is when we really know who people are is when they're hurting. So you see someone hurting help. And that's, Absolutely. that's been the mission of my, my work is to help. Absolutely. And I mean, while we're at it, protect black lives. Please. Black lives matter. We matter, please. And, and, and mattering is such the minimal of what, yeah. of what we're asking for. Um, we've been fighting for this for generations. And I, I talked to my mom who just turned 70 in May mm. and she watches the news and she shakes her head and she goes, I thought we did this already. Mm. I didn't think that my daughter would have to do this. I didn't think that my son would have to go through this. I didn't think, I thought we did the work. And to now know that we're pulling the Band-Aid off of so many injustices that's been going on. We've been crying out. We've been asking for help. Our lives matter. We didn't say they matter more. We didn't say they were better. We just want them to matter. And to matter the same that white lives matter. The same as white lives. The exact same. That's what we want. Real equity. Absolutely. Well, Tori, it has been such an honor to speak to you today. You're so inspiring. And I, I really look forward to releasing this episode into the wild and, and uh, for all our listeners to get inspired by you as well, because man, uh, the personal is political. It doesn't matter how you slice it. And uh, I I truly appreciate the work that you're doing, the energy that you've lent us today. Um, and the time you've taken to teach us. So guys, let's, let's listen up and let's, let's, uh, take on what Tori is teaching us today. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to speak on your platform. I find it a privilege and an honor to be able to do such. Thank you. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to host you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And when, when all of this is over, I'm coming to California. We're going to hug like real people. Oh, we are going to hug so (laughs) big. We're going to hug so big. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.